Amen. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. Church, you may go ahead and have a seat. Welcome. So glad to see each and every one of you here this morning. The weather is getting great. It's been a nice fall uh, week this week. Been enjoying that. Well, the date was December the 7th, 1941. What happened? Pearl Harbor. The Japanese military launched a surprise attack on the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. President Franklin D. Roosevelt had a decision to make. What was he going to do? Just an average day in Jane's life at work, then her boss calls her into, her office, into his office and tells her to fudge the numbers on the reports she's been working on. What's she going to do? Jack has been dealing with his teenage son's bad attitude for months now. One day he picks his son up from school, asks how his day was, and is instantly met with a negative, demeaning response. What's he going to do? The events in Esther chapter 4 lead Esther to a point of no return, you might say. She's coming to a defining moment in her life. And God uses defining moments. When David walked out onto the battlefield to face the giant with nothing more than a sling and five stones, that was a defining moment in his life. Just to recap and catch you up to where we are in our story, our study through Esther, King Ahasuerus, of course, in chapter 1, dethroned his queen, Vashti, and in her place put Esther, who up till then had just been a simple Jewish girl. Mordecai, in chapter 2, stopped a plot to assassinate the king, but has yet gone unrecognized. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is now second in command of the Persian Empire. And we saw last week how Haman's fury when Mordecai refused to pay homage led to the events of the coming genocide of the Jewish people. This morning, I want to look at the process that led to Esther's defining moment. She has a choice to make, and the choice that she makes is going to determine her future as well as the future of of the Jewish people. So if you haven't done so already, please turn with me to Esther chapter 4. We'll be considering the entirety of the chapter. Esther chapter 4. Please follow along as I read from verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai 
has been going about his normal day-to-day activities, guarding the king's gate, checking in on Esther, doing his thing, and boom, a bomb is dropped on his life. And not just his life, of course, but the lives of the entire Jewish nation. We saw last week, of course, how Haman plotted against the Jews. He wanted to take all of them out over Mordecai's refusal to bow. And when word of this edict gets to Mordecai, he is distraught. And it's possible, the text isn't super clear, but it's possible that he might even feel some kind of remorse now that he realizes his brotherhood will suffer for his actions. It's possible, we don't know for sure. But no doubt, he is in great turmoil over the change in events. You may or may not know that that in the Bible times, tearing one's clothes was a sign of great grief or great distress. And sackcloth and ashes were also signs of great grief or distress. Sackcloth, Sackcloth was a coarsely woven fabric, usually made of goat's or camel's hair. And it was uncomfortable, and it could be a tunic, or it could simply be a loincloth. And wearing such a garment, putting dust or ashes on one's head, or or laying in ashes, as Mordecai is doing here, is actually the person identifying with the dead. Picture it, if you will, someone so grieved, they just want to die. Here, by the way, is a place where we would expect to see the name Yahweh or at least some expression of worship or prayer because sackcloth and fasting and and prayer often went together. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, you can read this on the screen, Daniel writes, he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Prayer, fasting, sackcloth, it all went together, and yet here we see Mordecai doing just as Daniel did. But God's name, prayer, any element of worship is absent from the text. Again, that could be the author using God is working. Mordecai comes all the way up to the king's gate, but he couldn't go any further because it was against the law for anyone to go beyond the gate dressed in sackcloth. And it's interesting, there are actual historic sources that record people going to the Persian gate, going to the king's gate in this same way as a means of protest over some injustice. Think of it as today as picketing, only much more dramatic. A bomb has been dropped on the entire Jewish population. And you and I have experienced bombs in our life, have we not? Perhaps you've not been threatened with annihilation. I don't know, maybe you have. But we've all had bombs drop in our lives that shook us up. And you know, often our our first reaction to such things is, why God? What are you doing? What's going on? Well, God is leading his people to a defining moment. Here's your first point this morning. We're looking at the process that leads to defining moments, and the first step is this. God works through 
shakeups. God works through shakeups. What's a shakeup? When life throws you a curveball, that's a shakeup. When circumstances halt your everyday routine, that's a shakeup. When something happens, big or small, that causes you to stop and consider your next course of action, that's a shakeup. Why does God allow shakeups? They're so inconvenient. Well, to be honest with you, it's impossible for me or for you to ever fully understand God's reasons for doing such things or for allowing such things. God is doing right now 10 billion things for 10 trillion reasons all at the same time. So the why is often hard to define. Just to share with you, my wife and I have had infertility issues our entire marriage. And I've come to that point, why God? At this point in my life, it's easy to look back and see one of the reasons was that he allowed us to adopt four beautiful children who we may not have if things had been different. But that's not the only reason. There are many reasons God allowed that to happen in our lives, and we will never know them all. Not on earth. And there's many reasons that God allows shakeups in your life. And some reasons may be apparent, but you'll never know them all. The why sometimes is hard to define, but be assured of this that when shakeups happen in your life, God wants to use those to shape you. He wants to use those to grow you, He wants to use those to challenge you, and He wants to lead you to a defining moment in your life. In 2009, I'd been working for a small company here in Decatur and I suddenly found myself laid off. Boom. Shake up. I had a wife, still do. I had a one-year-old at the time, still have her, but she's not one anymore. What are you doing, God? Well, he was doing a lot of things in our lives. And one way he used that situation to shape me was to force me to be bold. The next day after I got laid off, I put together a resume and I went to businesses all over town. I spoke to managers. I tried to make myself as marketable as possible. I was bold and that was different for me because before that time, I'd been more of a timid person. God shakes us to shape us. He's doing something when a shakeup happens in your life. And right now, you might be facing a shakeup. In fact, this week, maybe God even dropped a bomb in your life, and the questions come What are you doing? How am I going to face this? What's going to happen to my family? I have to be honest with you, I don't have all those answers. But I can tell you this that God is working in and through you. He's leading you to a defining moment in your life. And whatever you're facing, take comfort that God is still in control. And he is using this to to shape your life and to shape you into the man or woman he wants you to be. So my challenge would be don't stop pursuing Jesus. Seek him through prayer. Even if that prayer is painful, seek him through prayer. Lean on him with all that you are and remember He's got his reasons, and he's got you in his hands. 
So Mordecai and the whole Jewish population here, this big bomb goes off in their lives. Mordecai is in grief. He goes to the gate in sackcloth and in ashes. How's Esther going to take the news? Read with me in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Now, it says here that Esther is distressed when she hears the word. Now, that that word for distress, that has the idea of labor pains. It's to tremble or even to writhe. In fact, the NASB translates it like this, the queen writhed in great anguish. Simply from overhearing that Mordecai sat in the town square crying and wearing sackcloth, Esther is distressed. And she sends her attendants to clothe him. And there are many thoughts as to why is she addressing the sackcloth and not the fact that he's grieving. One commentator suggests that Esther is superficial at this point and she's more concerned or possibly even embarrassed with the public display of distress But there's a stronger argument here to be made that Esther is trying to make him presentable so that he can come into the palace. But either way, Mordecai refuses clothes. He's trying to communicate the situation is dire. And it appears from the text that Esther's not even aware of this edict. She's not really, she doesn't even understand what's going on. And to be honest with you, it's not all that surprising that she's not aware We learn just a few verses later that she has not been called to the king for a month. And it's likely that the harem would have been shielded from the business of the king, so she has no idea. So this leads her to find out what's going on. Look at verse 5 with me. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So Mordecai, refusing this proper clothing, finally gets Esther's attention here, and something is very, very wrong. She sends Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, to find out what's going on, and do you see the little phrase in verse 7? Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. I missed that phrase until this week. Only this week did it really stick out to me that Mordecai is not just telling Hathak about the edict, but something else is going on here. I think what's going on here is that Mordecai is telling Hathak everything that happened between him and Haman. And the reason that I think that is because the pronoun here is singular. Mordecai told him, Hathak, all that had happened to him, Mordecai, not them, the Jews. So I think what's going on here is Hathak is getting an earful of everything that has happened and has led up to this point, which would explain how Esther comes to understand what happened between Mordecai and Haman. And notice, he also tells Hathak even the exact sum of money, the 10,000 talents that Haman had offered Ahasuerus for the genocide of the Jews. That's detail. How would Mordecai have known all that. We don't know exactly, but probably by working at the king's gate, he would have learned things that normal people wouldn't have heard. Follow the story in verse 8 with me. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her 
to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So here's your second point this morning. We're looking at the process of, a def- of defining moments, and point one was God works through shakeups. Point two, shakeups lead to inner struggles. Shakeups lead to inner struggles. So Mordecai tells Hathak everything. Hathak goes to Esther and tells her everything that Mordecai said, and so begins Esther's inner struggle. She relates through Hathak to Mordecai what everyone knows. Everyone knows. Everyone in all the provinces knows. You can't just approach the king. This was a law, by the way, for all Persian kings. They enforced this law forbidding anyone to come to the king without being summoned as a way of self-protection. And the only exceptions to this were the king's wise men. You remember we read about them in chapter one. There were seven of them, seven wise men. And you may remember the phrase used in chapter one that they saw the king's face. They were the only ones permitted to do so without the threat of death. Esther knows that if she goes to the king, she could quite die. Now, it's interesting because we know that even in Persia, it was possible to request an audience with the king. It was possible to do that. You could write an official request and present it to have an audience with the king, and that had to go through proper channels, of course. So you might think, well, why didn't she just do that? Why is Mordecai asking her to risk her own life when they could just go through the proper channels, go to the king, and try to get this the right way without such a risk? Well, one probably meant the why they didn't do it that way is because going through proper channels probably meant that her request would first be brought to Haman. And if he learned what the queen was up to, he, of course, would have stopped that. But you might be tempted to think, she's not just any gal, she's the queen. Surely she would have an opportunity to talk to her husband. Well, as every busy family in this room can attest, it practically takes an act of Congress to be able to talk to one's spouse. Because life is crazy. But I can assure you that's not what's going on here. Esther would have actually had limited access to Ahasuerus, and that might seem strange to us, but that was the times. They would have not shared the same bedroom. They would have not even eaten meals together. The queen had her own chambers, and she only went to the king when summoned. She, like everyone else, was forbidden to simply approach the king. So you can readily appreciate her concern here. You can readily appreciate her inner struggle. If I do this, I could die. You talk about a struggle here. If I do this, my life could be over. But if I don't do this, the lives of all my people could be over. But I I think her inner struggle even goes a step beyond that. It's possible that she's feeling pressure from both sides here because of who she is, because of her personality. Up until this point, all we've seen about Esther is that she's very compliant. She always did what Mordecai told her. 
And then when she, she was taken and added to the harem and became queen, she did what the attendants told her, and she did what the king told her. Not before now have those two authorities conflicted. She's loyal to both. But now, by obeying one, she has to disobey the other. There's a conflict of loyalties here. And she doesn't know what to do. Now, years ago, I worked for G&D while they were still here in Decatur. And my employer was the company G&D, but I worked on site at Caterpillar. I worked closely with cat employees. I had a G&D boss and I had a Caterpillar boss. And that was fun. Actually, I found myself between a rock and a hard place more than once, and so on a smaller, much smaller scale. I can appreciate what Esther might be feeling here, her inner struggle between going to the king and possibly dying or saving her people, or the caught here between two loyalties that she's going to have to disobey one to obey another is just struggling. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have been caught between two loyalties. We all have loyalties. We have loyalties to family, loyalty to work, loyalty to church, loyalty to friends, loyalty to teachers, loyalty to government. And sometimes being loyal to one compromises our loyalty to another. And sometimes it's obvious which loyalty we should obey. We all know we should obey God first. We all know that we should choose family over the job, if that's possible. I understand it's not always possible because of schedules and other things. Sometimes choosing which loyalty is obvious, but other times it's hard. Other times we struggle. Which loyalty should I choose? If I'm caught between two authorities, per se. Or if I'm caught between two different convictions, which do I submit to? Sometimes we may wonder, you know, why is God even allowing this conflict in my life? Why is he allowing this inner struggle where I'm trying to figure out what to do? Why can't he just make it cut and dry? I believe God allows inner struggles to sift out loyalties that might be misplaced. And perhaps he might even be testing us. What do we learn about ourselves when we're going through inner struggles? Quite honestly, we learn where our heart truly lies. When we're going through an inner struggle, when we're torn between two loyalties, we're learning something about our own heart. Now, biblically, the heart is not just the emotions. We like to think of emotions. Love somebody with all your heart. We're thinking emotions. That's the way we typically think about that as Americans. But in the Bible, the heart is the center of human personality. It's the origin of thought and will. Tim Keller writes, you can read this on the screen, What the heart most loves is what it most trusts and commits itself to. What the heart most loves is what it most trusts and commits itself to. So, if you most love comfort, if that's where your thought and your will is bent toward, then you'll be committed to whatever makes you comfortable. If you most love to please your boss, you'll likely choose work over family. Inner struggles reveal to us where our loyalties lie, where our heart truly lies. And God allows these struggles, these conflicting struggles, to show us where we are not loyal to him. 
Inner struggles are uncomfortable and they can be unsettling, but they're good because they reveal to us how God wants to shape us. How might be God using inner struggles in your life to shape you? God works through shakeups. Shakeups lead to inner struggles. And our third and final point, inner struggles lead to defining moments. Inner struggles lead to defining moments. This is where we've been driving toward. This is where our story has taken us. The shakeup has caused a domino effect leading Esther to this moment. What's she going to do? Look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai here gives her a warning and an encouragement. A warning and an encouragement. He warns her that she will not escape even this edict. If this edict goes into effect, she is not going to escape from this. And he goes on to say that the Jews will be delivered even if she doesn't act. And if she doesn't act, he basically tells her, you're going to be doomed. How can he say that? If Esther keeps quiet, doesn't reveal that she's a Jew, how can he say that she, she says she and her father's house will be destroyed? To be honest with you, we really don't know why Mordecai said this. We don't have a satisfying answer to that question. Why is he saying this? Some have suggested that Mordecai might be threatening to reveal her Jewish heritage if she chooses not to act. Others have gone as far as to say that Mordecai is delivering a veiled threat to kill her himself if she remains silent. I have to say I struggle with those. Personally, I struggle with those explanations because we see throughout the book of of Esther that Mordecai loves Esther. He raised Esther. He checks up on her every day. These are just theories. Personally, if I'm going to share what I think, I wonder if Mordecai believed that Esther would be divinely punished if she didn't act. But again, there's nothing from the text to conclude that. He simply says, if you don't help, you're going to be doomed. But you know what? Mordecai's words here also reflect something of his faith. Here again, we might expect to hear the name Yahweh mentioned. Mordecai could have said, if you keep silent... God will raise deliverance for the Jews from another place. But he doesn't say that. Again, the name of Yahweh is absent. Nevertheless, Mordecai's words are suggestive of his faith in Yahweh. He does not believe the end of the Jews is near. He does not believe that. He cannot see their deliverance beyond Esther, but he does not believe that the end of the Jews is near. And that suggests that he holds, to, he holds true the promises that God made to Abraham. Mordecai believes the Jews will be preserved. It's just a matter of how. And by the way, Mordecai encouraging Esther to do this, 
hints at human responsibility. It hints at human responsibility. God invites us to take part in his plan, but he doesn't force us. There are several examples in the Bible of God giving people chances to serve and to obey and to follow, and yet they fall short. You remember King Saul, we talked about him last week. He failed to obey God and the kingdom was torn away from him. And you can read this on the screen. This is, this is the response that God gives to Saul. It says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Human responsibility, Saul fell short and he lost out. Another example, you might remember the story in Numbers 13, Moses sends out the 12 spies to view the promised land where God had been leading the nation of Israel toward, but they come back, at least 10 of them do, with a bad report, and the whole nation rebels against God, and as a result, they spend 40 years roaming the desert when God was ready to give them the promised land. So Mordecai's warning here rings true. That if you don't help, God's going to raise deliverance from somewhere else. And I've been telling you through this whole study that God's plans won't be thwarted, and that's true. God's plans cannot be thwarted, but if you want to be a part of God's plan, there's an element of human responsibility. There is. Yes, I believe in grace. Yes, I believe in the work. Beyond my understanding, I believe that God is sovereign, absolutely. But somehow, in the mix of all that, beyond my understanding, there's an element of human responsibility. God lays before us a plan. He lays before us what he wants us to do, but we can refuse to do that and miss out. Now, I wonder, you know, one day we'll enter heaven. Will we look back at the times that we missed, at the wasted time. We could have witnessed to others. We could have served our family better in this area. We could have taken responsibility for this or that. I don't know. But God calls us to do things and we will miss out if we don't. Look at me, with verse, look at me on verse 14. Mordecai says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. A side note here, we can't see how God is gonna work everything out from another place. You know, you might be facing dire situations right now and you can't even see how God's gonna work it out. Maybe you can't even see any good in some situation in your life. But let me remind you that just because we don't see how God is going to work something out doesn't mean that he's not going to work something out. He is personally involved in your life. And that doesn't mean that whatever you're facing is going to work out the way you hope it to. But God is working. Mordecai gives Esther a warning, but then he gives her an encouragement probably the most famous part in all of Esther, Esther 4.14, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You are here, right where you're supposed to be, 
for the reasons God put you there. You're here for his work. And friends, that's applicable to everyone in this room. You are here. You are here in this place. You are here in this city. You are here in your job. You are here in your family. You are here in your school. You are here in your neighborhood for such a time as this. God has called you to be right where you are. This is Esther's defining moment. Now, a defining moment is a point where you must make a pivotal decision, a decision that will define some aspect of your life. That's a defining moment. And these moments can be big. Getting married, having children, taking on a career, moving to a different place. These things redefine our lives. But you know, defining moments can be small. Just because something's a defining moment doesn't mean it has to be big and define something big in your life. Defining moments can be small and define small things about us. Speaking up for Christ. Choosing not to watch or read something because it's trash. Choosing to address a situation with our kids when we could easily ignore it. Putting priority on our spouse and our family. These things, though small, set up our lives, define things in our lives. Esther has reached a defining moment. The dutiful girl must break a loyalty somewhere. She has to choose, and her choice could mean death. What is she going to do? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. It all came down to a choice. Her defining moment came down to a choice she had to choose and she chose to be loyal to her people. Now, fasting, of course, was a way of humbling oneself before God. Many of you probably practice fasting today, something of denying yourself something, food or or some other item, as a way to submit yourself to God, draw closer to God, reconnect with God. And often it was done as a way of making a request of God. Sometimes it was also done as a way of preparing for service, as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. Esther is requesting an earnest appeal to God here. Even though God's not mentioned, the fact that she's fasting points to she looking to Yahweh. The whole idea of fasting is an appeal to the Lord. And you gotta think about it, not eating or drinking for three days, that's quite an appeal. But it also seems to be proportionate to the severity of the situation. They're all gonna die if something's not done. So let's appeal to the Lord. And note, I love what she says at the end of verse 16. If I perish, I perish. That's boldness. That's Esther growing. I told you at the start of the series that Esther is the only character that's given two names. We have her Hebrew name given in uh, chapter two as Hadassah. And then we're also given her Persian name, Esther. And the author seems to be hinting that a change takes place in Esther throughout the book 
And I believe that's what we're seeing here. She's leaving behind her compliant behavior and she's beginning to embrace the person she's meant to be. This is her defining moment. And these are the moments that we love in movies. We do. We love watching when the character of a movie finally makes the choice to do what's right, to do what must be done. And one such great moment is in The Greatest Showman. Greatest Showman, P.T. Barnum, of course, played by Hugh Jackman, is down on his luck by the end of the movie. He's lost his family, he's lost his business, he's lost his reputation. But then all the circus performers show up and they express their belief in him even after what's happened, even after he's failed them. And then they all sing that marvelous song. From now on. I won't sing it for you, but it's a great song. If you haven't seen the movie, you need to watch it. It's a great moment because P.T. Barnum realizes that he lost sight of what's most important, specifically his family, and then he's running through the streets of the city to get back to his wife and daughters, and that was his defining moment. What about us? The greatest defining moment in anyone's life is whether or not they receive Christ. The greatest defining moment in anyone's life is whether or not they receive Christ. And many of you in this room have already had that moment. Praise the Lord. But for some, for some of you, that moment may yet come. Have you had that defining moment? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you realized your need for him? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you recognized that your sin separates you from him? But one choice, one moment to repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus will wipe your sins away, will redefine your life. Will you come today to Jesus? Come, talk with us. We're here. Now, Christian, you've had your defining moment with Christ, but what about all the defining moments since then? What about all the defining moments to come? Do the defining moments in your life lead to choices that truly reflect what you believe? What small defining moments are in your everyday life? What defining moments could you possibly be running from? What ways are you failing to let Jesus define your moments? How is God wanting to use the small everyday defining moments to shape your life as well as the big life-altering moments? How is God wanting to draw you into a deeper walk with him, a walk of faith and trust? How might you be avoiding those defining moments out of fear? Are you following a path of least resistance because it's comfortable, because it's easy? Or are you letting the Holy Spirit guide you through these moments, shaping you, changing you, molding you more into the image of his son? God is leading all of us toward defining moments and he wants to use these moments to shape you and your kids and your family and your neighbors and your friends 
and your small group and your church. And I recognize that these moments can be very complex. It's not always cut and dry. I realize that. Oftentimes, they're not simple. It's not just a simple decision of choose A or choose B. Sometimes there's a slew of possibilities. Sometimes reaching a decision like Esther did isn't simple. Sometimes there's just way too many factors involved to try to figure out what is the right decision. Sometimes there's many right decisions and many wrong decisions. What do I do in a situation like that? God knows. And he remembers that we are but dust. We don't see the end from the beginning as he does. Simply be faithful. And you might think to yourself, I don't even know what that looks like. I may not know what that looks like either. Your small group may not know what that looks like either. But it is one reason why the church is here. We're a family. Come with your frailties, come with your questions, come with your hurts, and we will pray through this together. You know, Jesus had many defining moments. Think of his temptation. Disciples. Think of the cross. In each of these moments, he did not abandon the will of the Father. He obeyed faithfully and perfectly. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And Peter, you gotta love Peter. Peter takes Jesus aside and it says in Matthew 16, 21, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now imagine Jesus in that moment. Can you imagine your close friend trying to persuade you to go against what God wants you to do? Talk about a bomb being dropped. But verse 23, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. A defining moment, Jesus' close friend discouraging him from walking the path that God laid before him. Yet, Jesus made the choice not to falter. He made the choice to follow the Father's plan, even to the cross. And there's our inspiration. Look to your Savior who faced history's greatest defining moment, offering salvation, offering a way of escape, not just to one nation as Esther did, but to all who embrace him by faith. Let Jesus' sacrifice of love be the thing that truly defines you. In response to Pearl Harbor, Franklin D. Roosevelt of the United States and the United States Congress declared war on the empire of Japan. And we know what followed. Our fictional character, Jane, summoned her courage and told her boss she wasn't going to lie on those reports and then waited to hear what he would say. Our other fictional character, Jack, decided enough was enough. He needed to address his son's behavior, so he pulled the car over, said a silent prayer, and spoke to his son, having no clue how his son would respond. 
God's working in you, church. Trust him, even in your defining moments. Let's pray. Jesus, how awesome you are. How faithful you are. How true. How incredible it is that you faced the greatest defining moment in history. And because of that, we, your people, can face the moments that you allow to happen, that you even orchestrate to happen for your glory. Lord Jesus, bombs are being dropped in our lives. You allow things to shake us up, but you do that for a reason to lead us to that inner struggle, to lead us to that defining moment, to make a decision. There are decisions that need to be made by your people in this room. And they want to honor you. We want to honor you. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for guidance. And I pray that we will constantly look to you as our example and our strength. We trust you, Jesus. We give ourselves to you, and it's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.